Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. This is John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM, every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And you can find our back shows, including this one later today, at visionaries.podbean.com. And we're going to talk today about hypermodernity. And our guests are John David Ebert, Brian Francis Culkin, both of whom have been on our show before. And we're joined by Michael Aaron Kamins. And Ebert and Culkin have written a new book. Michael Aaron Kamins. Michael Aaron, thank you. And uh, Michael uh, uh, Ebert and Culkin have written a new book, Hypermodernity and the End of the World. And Michael did an introduction or preface to the book. So let's start with maybe each of us could, each of you could tell us who you are and how you happen to work on this book. Yeah, Michael, you should start. You introduced us. <laughs> so you should start. Uh, sure. Um, you mean I introduced you? In- introduce yourself. Yeah. Uh, Tell us where we're interested. We can find more about you. Sorry, off the ground. My name is Michael Aaron Kamins. I'm a poet. Um, I also work in um, in mental health. I I'm a I do psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, uh, and um, and also uh, teach hypnosis um, in a clinical context. But um, um, really, my my passion is poetry and uh, literary, the literary art. And uh, me and John uh, have been talking for for a long time now um, and just kind of exchanging ideas. I uh, was really drawn to John's book, Celluloid Heroes and Mechanical Dragons. And then I reached out to him, um, I don't know, maybe eight years ago now. Uh, and it was at a time when I was going through a kind of dry period with my poetry and felt like I had exhausted what I, I kind of had exhausted all the forms that I had been uh, working with as a poet and, um, and thought maybe that poetry was just a phase that I was uh, growing out of. But then when I was introduced to John and his work, particularly when he became interested in, uh, in postmodernism and putting videos up about Heidegger and Derrida, uh, it, it really inspired me. And then we, we started a correspondence, um, you know, that, that uh, came uh, my book Absences, um, which was written around the time that John was working on Art After Metaphysics. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, since then, we've been talking about this thing called hypermodernity and trying to understand what this contemporary moment is and the effect that the Internet has had on reality. And... Um, and really, as a poet, um, my interest is really just in, in metaphors and trying to, uh, one, as a kind of phenomenologist, what are the metaphors that are presenting themselves to us that are hypermodern, I guess, uh, and also trying to imagine uh, new ones to help us orient ourselves in this uh, really strange 
uh, time. Um, and then, um, and then uh, me and Brian Culkin, we've been talking uh, for the past year or so, uh, and just all of us have been corresponding on this idea and, and trying to figure it out. And um, and it's been a really creative and really cool time. So, um, and thanks wow. for having me on. Yeah. Right, Brian, you want to go next? You yeah. Um, well, I think similar to Michael, I, I was drawn to John's work, and 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 this was about the time. You know, I I have a background, probably about as far away from what I'm doing now than possibly. I I have a background kind of in um, when I was younger in in athletics, and then afterwards I was involved in the financial industry for my first years after college, and then the the artist and the writer inside of me decided to make the switch. And, and when I started writing books, that's when I came in contact with John's work. And I was like Michael, very, um, it was eye opening to me in many ways. So um, this concept of hypermodernity that the three of us have been kind of John and Michael a little bit longer than myself, but that we've been talking about um, over the past couple of years has now gestated it into a book, um, hypermodernity and the end of the world. And I guess, you know, my, my interest is, is uh, more along the lines of how capitalism is the, the dominant social, the, the dominant principle of social organization in the era of hypermodernity. And this corresponds nicely with Michael's poetic work and, and John's media theory um, to kind of produce a unique book that we have here that's going to be the first in a trilogy that we're calling the hyper, the hyper modern trilogy. And this is book one, Hypermodernity and the End of the World. And it's kind of a, um, I think this book is well, kind of- Well, that'll stop it right there. <laughs> yeah. The world ends after this one. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, we start off strong with that title, but it is to kind of alert the reader that what we see with hypermodernity is a collapse of symbolic reality, how we've known it really since the Neolithic period. Um, so hypermodernity is in a way an extension. It's, it's, it's kind of a radicalization of both modernity and post-modernity. But in, in another sense, it's kind of an end game of the whole historical development of the human race. So the end of the world doesn't necessarily mean the end of civilization, although it could be. But really what it means is that what, what's happening right now, at least the way we see it, is we're in a bit of a transitionary period where something new is, is, is trying to emerge. And we have to be on the lookout for that. And one of the ways we can be on the lookout for that is by writing about it and, and theorizing it and talking about it and bringing it, bringing it into some kind of public consciousness where, you know, things can move, things can shift. So that's, that's the basic idea of, um, of hypermodernity. It is quite dramatic. And as we all know, we're living in a very dramatic time, whether it's politically or economically and, and most certainly ecologically. So this is a very sensitive moment in the, in the his, and really in, in the history of the, of the human race, in the history of the human race, and hypermodernity is is this period that that we term as kind of the um, the crescendo, you could say, where where, where things are reaching a boiling point, that is um, brought forth first and foremost by the internet, and then a series of other economic and social and cultural formations that kind of go along with that. So that's that's the basic cognitive map of um, hypermodernity. All right, well, I'm anxious to ask what it is, but we got one more. John, John David Ebert, tell us what you've been up to. Yeah. So I'm John David Ebert, uh, and I've been writing cultural criticism, it seems like forever, but it's, yeah, it's been three decades. 
Um, and uh, so I'm a cultural critic. I'm out with 26 books. And uh, my focus has always been, ever since I encountered Spengler's Decline of the West, it's always been, you know, what, what causes cultural forms to disintegrate? What destabilizes them? What is it that brings them into being in the first place and then that destabilizes them and makes them go out of being? So I've, I've been sort of obsessed with this idea of the fact that cultures are not necessarily stable. They arise and they disintegrate like everything does on this planet. So uh, that's what I've been fascinated with is, is studying cultural morphologies. So, oh, so let's uh, I'm I'm into this kind of stuff myself. So <clears throat> I'd be really interested in your guys take on how you would describe the Enlightenment, modernism, postmodernism and hypermodernity. Forget it. <laughs> oh, OK, that, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so yeah. I could take a stab at it if you sure. want. Kind of a brief sketch. Well, the the Enlightenment is is generally a period considered in the 17th century. Um, writers like uh, Rene Descartes and Jean Locke, and it's it's basically um, <laughs> forecasting on the political level the the breakdown of of what Michel Foucault calls sovereign states. It's 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 kind of opening a space of. Uh, individual reason, uh, the um, uh, on the political level, some kind of democratic form. Um, and then modernity takes that and kind of implements those ideas. So for instance, in America, I mean, the entire intellectual edifice of, of American society, um, Jefferson, Madison, um, John Jay, these people were, were directly influenced by Rousseau and, um, and, and John Locke and Montesquieu, the great enlightenment writers. Um, so with, with modernity, you get the rise of the nation state, you get the rise of uh, new um, forms of economic productivity, namely capitalism and the rise of industrialization. And then when you hit post-modernity after the Second World War, what you start to see is kind of a liquefaction, a breakdown of, of, of those stable structures that were inherent to, inherent to modernity. And then with hypermodernity, which which comes in, Tech, technologically in 1995 with the internet and politically in 2001 with the September 11th attacks, you, in one sense, you have post-modernity on steroids. You have a radicalization of the breakdown of modernity. But yet, in another sense, hypermodernity is a whole new horizon. It's, it's a whole new logic. And that is mainly, at least in my reading, formed by the integration of capitalism and, and computational logic where in post-modernity, you had a kind of a narrative breakdown of uh, both the, the uh, narratives of modernity and also the, the material productive structures, such as the factories in America begin to get outsourced to China. In, in hyper-modernity, you have something new, which is this integration of reality with technology, where it's not so much a breakdown, but it's kind of like the fragments of modernity are being coded are being set into algorithms. And this is causing a, 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 a huge crisis um, across multiple fields, but I think most especially it's in the field of meaning, or you could say a, some, some kind of symbolic crisis. So part of, and I, I'm, I'm gonna pass it to John next, but, but part of this book I think is trying to articulate what Frederick Jameson called the cognitive map. 
what's missing today is any, I mean, and Baudrillard said this too, like a medieval peasant had, had more understanding of the sense of the world than the majority of human beings living in the world today. There is an onslaught of information. There is an onslaught of capitalist mediation where people don't know who they are, don't know, I mean, don't have, have, have no sense of history, have no sense of culture. So what is needed today in the era of, of hypermodernity is some kind of cognitive map, some, some kind of sense of this is where we are, this is what's happening, this is where we may be going, this is where we, where we have come from. And I think this is what this book at least tries to do at the minimum level is provide some kind of cognitive map. Because what, what is at least continuous with the Enlightenment and modernity and even post-modernity is there is some semblance of, okay, I know where I am right now. I know what's happening. And when you get to hypermodernity, that sense is totally and completely liquefied. It's fragmented. So, so this is. Before we get to John, let me yeah. uh, thank you guys for sending me the book, which I really enjoyed. And I gather it's now available on Amazon. So go look. Yeah. And, uh, but when we look at McLuhan, he talks about something similar a movement in his case from uh, literate to literacy to electronicy from the print age to the electronic age. And rather than describe it with values, he doesn't say everything's getting terrible, but he says everything has changed. This is the new reality. And he doesn't value it positively or negatively. You guys seem to have a very negative uh, feeling about the kind of fragmentation that uh, hypermodernity brings us. How do you feel about no, not necessarily. Not, ne not necessarily. And this is why I, I would like Michael. Uh, Michael has um, a, a metaphysical version of, of all this. I, I would like him to give his like metaphysical uh, explanation for, for what he thinks has happened. Because it, it, when Michael talks about this in terms of his metaphysics, it's, it's totally without judgment. I mean, it's, it's, you know. So, Michael, I think you should tell us what how you see this development happening. Okay, yeah, well, so I see it because um, my background is, is in the arts and poetry, and I'm really interested in what cognitive linguists call conceptual metaphors. And this is something that, uh, you know, that all of our thoughts all of our communication, everything is, is metaphorical. Um, that's actually how we think. And these metaphors actually come out of our embodied experience. So for example, um, you know, we associate being down, right? The spatial metaphor, you know, the vertical position of being down as, as bad maybe, because if you're, when you're prone on the ground, that's when you're sick or when you're dead. And we associate up with, uh, you know, standing upright and, um, and you know, being high, being feeling good. Uh, so we associate that direction with, with what's good. And I'm just using that as an example uh, to show that all of our thoughts and the way that we evaluate things is, is based on metaphors that come out of our body and our embodied experience. Um, and so I'm interested in looking at uh, different metaphors for understanding where we are. 
in history and how that has changed over time. And something that uh, I find really interesting is that the sociologist uh, uh, Zygmunt Bowman talks about one of all three of our favorites, by the way. He talks about postmodernity as a liquid modernity. And during that time, there was a liquefaction of the presuppositions and the axioms of, of modernity. And in the alchemical tradition, which is important to me in terms of uh, its relationship to, you know, I, I see alchemy, you know, going back to the Renaissance and then going even further back in back to the ancient Greeks. Um, alchemy is is sort of the the, the point where um, the old world of natural medieval philosophy and then the the modern world of, of technology and progress it's right in between those two worlds and that's why Carl Jung for example was really interested in in alchemy because he thought that the sort of modern unconscious was an alchemical one and that you could see these alchemical images in our in our dreams and in our cultural productions and so in many respects the, the, the progress the dream of modern progress was an alchemical dream of realizing the philosopher's stone um, and you know which is a which would be some kind of object that uh, could grant immortality it could uh, transform other objects into things that are more valuable um, and it's a stone of wisdom so it promises all knowledge uh, that you you would want to know um, and Spangler calls our particular civilization Faustian uh, and uh, referring to Goethe's Faust. Um, and one of the things about Faust, particularly Faust part two, is that it's an alchemical allegory. And so our civilization, this Faustian civilization, which is obsessed with, uh, according to Spangler, the conquest of infinite space, in contrast to the, the Greeks who couldn't uh, really, you know, their history, sense of history was wrapped up with mythology. Um, whether it's with Hesiod or with Homer and the Doric column of this sort of domed cavern universe they lived in, they were afraid of infinite space, of the conquest of leaping out into, into the sky, um, whereas, the, whereas our civilization is the opposite and we're, we're obsessed with this Faustian conquest of space. And um, why I'm mentioning that is because there's an alchemical uh, imaginary or alchemical virtual imaginary underneath uh, modernity and the development of modernity into post-modernity. And so to go back to the idea of liquid modernity, so with post-modernity, you have the liquefaction of the axioms of modernity. And in alchemy, that's an operation called solutio, which means uh, you know, solution and dissolution. And solutio is a destructive operation or a deconstructive operation because when you melt something down, you're returning it to the original chaos of the beginning, which we, you know, many cultures imagine that as water or as the ocean, you know, um, whether it's in our own you know, scientific narrative of, of, you know, the primordial soup or uh, the beginning of Genesis with God hovering over the, over the ocean or the waters. Um, so when you when you dissolve something, you destroy it. You, re you, you return it to an original chaos. But one of the things that's interesting about hypermodernity, and and I've noticed this just within the last few years, is um, is that 
uh, from a sort of phenomenological perspective, I'm seeing the image and icon of the cloud appearing everywhere. And we're in this cloud computing culture uh, where, where things are digitalized and everything is digitalized and then it's made telepresent. So it, there's a, a digital telematization of, of everything. And in alchemy, uh, uh, the cloud is air, and the air operation is called sublimatio, which which means sub, sublimation. And it's the it's in some ways the opposite of liquefaction or solutio, because when you subject something to sublimatio, you're turning it into a vapor, right? And with solutio, you're destroying something, you're returning it to the original chaos. But when you're vaporizing something in the alchemical imagination, you're actually you're you're transmuting it into its platonic ideal. So there's something about hypermodernity where there was this liquid modernity where postmodernity melted everything down, but then now we're in this, you know, since 1995, since the, the internet went public and has taken over, caught all of us in this sort of net. It's almost like uh, a fisherman's net that's cast into the ocean of liquid modernity, and then things are drying out now, and things are drying out into digital beings, which are sort of these virtual platonic. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. Yeah, and so I think that, um, and so the way that I look at it is part of this meta narrative. This is part of the Faustian alchemical narrative that hypermodernity is actually, um, you know, because in alchemy you have to dissolve the thing first. You have to destroy the, the the material. Let's say it's lead. You have to make it into the prima materia, dissolve it, and then you have to dry it out, vaporize it, subject it to heat, and then you know to, to transform it into a higher stage and so um so i sort of see and i'll stop with this i sort of see that um, hypermodernity is some sort of at some level not that it doesn't this is just one point of view on it is that at some level it is the it's a continuing and perhaps the apotheosis and, and completion of this alchemical dream of the you know which is an eschatological dream the dream of progress uh joaquin of Flores's, uh Holy Spirit realized through history, which is connected to the, the philosopher's stone as a historical project. And so with hypermodernity, with digitalization, everything, uh, it's almost like we've created the philosopher's stone with the internet, which um, if you look at what the internet is and does and what it offers, and then you read about the philosopher's stone and what the alchemists promised it offers, there's a, there's a, a connection there, a correlation there. And so I see hypermodernity as, the, um, as that as somehow we're living in the, in the clouds and in this sort of faith space defined by the internet digitalization and has a more aerial metaphor uh, 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 and we're sort of drying out from liquid modernity into these digital avatars and beings, so. Cool, so listen, let me reintroduce our guests. We're yep. talking about a book that's just come out, Hypermodernity and the End of the World by John David Ebert and Brian Francis Culkin with a preface by, we just heard from him, Michael Aaron Kamins. And uh, in the book, you guys spend a lot of time with specifics on smartphones, malls, uh, art. Uh, so describe to us some of the changes that uh, hypermodernity is bringing us that we're experiencing in our lives. Yeah, I, I mean, the first thing I noticed was the, the, the disappearance of malls, 
Um, I grew up in, in malls. Malls were like the world interior of post-modernity. Um, I didn't know that as I was growing up in them, of course, but um, they were the place to go. They were the place to be. That, that was where all the cool shit was happening, in the malls. And then I noticed, uh, I don't know, in the early 2000s, that they were disappearing. Um, I went to Tower Records up the street one day, and it was gone. <laughs> Tower Records is now defunct. <laughs> and I was like, that can't possibly be the case. And they're like, yeah, we're done. You know, the Internet has killed us. Um, so I started realizing at that point that uh, something something serious is going on here with the culture. It's, it's changing. It's totally transforming. When you get one uh, world interior in malls, the world interior of post-modernity, that gets transformed uh, into another world interior. And in this case, the new world interior is, of course, the Internet, because now you don't have to go to malls. You have the mall on your laptop. You just go on to it and shop and buy whatever you want. And so, but that's an individualized experience. It's no longer communal. It's no longer a place where we're sitting around eating, you know, huge cookies and drinking, uh, you know, huge Cokes uh, and with plastic ferns and escalators. You know, those days are gone. So I realized once I saw that Tower Records was closing, I went on to the internet and I started looking at um, how many things were shutting down, magazines, newspapers. And I was like, oh my God, this is hitting everything. And so I wrote my book, The New Media Invasion, back in 2011. Uh, based on that paradigm, I didn't realize it was a shift into a whole new epoch uh, called hypermodernity. At, at that point, I didn't realize. But um, in hindsight, I do. And um, yeah, and so all that culture was analog. It was, none of it was digital. It, it was all analog. It was analog photographs. It was analog uh, this, analog that. And then, but everything in hypermodernity is digital. There's not one single thing that isn't. And so once you get a shift in a world horizon from a place, let's say the world horizon shifts from Paris to New York, as it did in the 50s with all the abstract expressionists, you've got a new world. That's not the same thing anymore. Once the world horizon shifts from Paris to New York with the abstract expressionists and the pop artists, Andy Warhol and, and Pollock and, and Rocka, that's a whole new game now because the world horizon has shifted. And so by that same principle, I realized there's a shift here. Something um, totally, it's like an earthquake that's going on in our civilization that's happened here that's totally shifted. And now we're in a new age. And I'm not the only one to perceive this, by the way. I, I, there's a book called Digimodernism by the, uh, the, the, the scholar, I think his name is Alan Kirby. And he agrees, too, that 1995 was the end of postmodernity. And he marks it with Toy Story as the first totally digital film, as the new thing. And he calls it Digimodernism. But, of course, the phrase Digimodernism is totally clumsy. It doesn't roll off the tongue and it doesn't feel right. There's not, there's just something not right about it. But other scholars have perceived this shift in the mid nineties. Uh, so, so we're not the first guys here it's, to see this happening. Yeah. It, go ahead. No, it's, it's interesting. Um, um, you just got me thinking, John, when you mentioned the, the shift in the art world, 
from Paris to New York after the war and the, and, and the abstract expressionist painters like Pollock and Rothko and so on and so forth. But I, I think what's happening right now could be even similar. I actually just read something this morning that the, the, the film that came out this weekend, The Lion King, or last weekend, it had a bigger opening in China than in America. And then in, in that same article was, was um, by 20, I think it was 2022, the Chinese box office will be bigger than Hollywood. So we could be in a way um, seeing some kind of um, new, in, in the same way that the art world shifted from Paris, New York after the war, Hollywood is, is for all intents and purposes, the, 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 the signature artistic medium of, of, of American culture. And as that shifts over to China, that could be, you know, another telltale sign that 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 we are firmly in the era of, of hypermodernity, or even taking it to a new level. And on the political level, this has been noted by numerous intelligent comment, commentators like Zizek and Alan Badu, that the liberal the 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 wedding between liberal democracy and capitalism is 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 coming undone as we speak. And the, the new model that seems to be preferred by corporate power is the Chinese model, which is kind of authoritarian rule with capitalism. So I think um, if, if Hollywood or, or if the international cinema industry relocates itself in Shanghai or Beijing, that would be absolutely indicative of some kind of radical transformation of place, similar to what happened with the shift in the art world after the war from Paris to New York. But it's interesting though, that with, um, I mean, the, the shift to Asia, is, it, it's one thing, but, and John, you um, you you turned me on to this, just Jen's book, The Girl at the Baggage Claim, right? Where where they go, right. uh, the, yeah, the Asian idea of the self doesn't even remotely resemble the Western idea of the self. Nothing. Of course, that's yeah. well introduced in Joseph Campbell. But, but let me what the thesis of her book is, which is that, um, you know, they go to pick up this girl that they think is going to be an Olympic athlete. Incredible. She's awesome. Let's go get her. So they go pick her up. And the Chinese have substituted her sister. Uh, for what reason, I can't remember. But they've substituted her sister and they're like, What's the difference? It's, <laughs> what's the but difference? That, John, but that, <laughs> There's a huge fucking difference. Are you kidding me? You know, and uh, <laughs> John, John, yeah, go ahead. The, the, uh, chi the, the historic Chinese model where, as you are correct, the, the uh, basic idea of subjectivity is absent. And, and that stems from the, on one level, the, the Confucian political ideal of a collective community where the individual really isn't important at all. And on the other side of things, maybe with the Taoist idea of kind of a, uh, kind of a spiritual substance, but that, that really goes well with the ideology of networks and the ideology to Michael's point, the cloud, whereas the Western tradition, there's something about the self and the idea of um, subjectivity that doesn't really, it's kind of a blockage to what the energy of hypermodernity wants to do which is to extend itself through networks, which is to extend itself through flows of capital, through flows of technology. So that shift to China is not only a, a, a shift in actual um, productive forces like Hollywood or, or um, factories, it's also an ideological shift in the sense that 
subjectivity, the self is being wiped out and we are being reconstituted re, uh, as simply points of uh, nodes in a network, which, which, which syncs much more with historic Chinese political and, and uh, spirituality. Right. Would you agree with that, John? Mm -hmm. Right, like that, Brian, yeah. I, that's like the, yeah, me, it's like that metaphor of, of vaporization or um, the sublimatio that what you just said, it's like being, being turned into those nodal points the way that I like to imagine that is through that alchemical image of, you know, where you're heating something up in in a hermetic vessel and then it becomes vapor and and uh, and a sort of, it's like we're becoming this digital sublimate that collects at the top of a hermetic vessel that and those vessels are our screens, you know, um, and um, so yeah, just so let me jump to another issue. Um, you do a great job in the book of tracing uh, beginnings of modernism and art with Manet. So, uh, Ebert, could you sort of follow the thread in art that gets us to our current hypermodernity? Yeah, with Manet. Manet was, was you know, he's the, the founder of modernism, uh, right? In the sense that this is the first guy who he comes on stage and he's pals with Baudelaire. So the two of them did this together, uh, Baudelaire and poetry, Manet and art, of getting rid of all the grand meta narratives, all the, the the narratives that have anything to do with Christian uh, imagery or with Greek mythology. Um, they're like, we're sick of that. The West is done with that. Let's not do that anymore. Let's just do the city. The city will now be the new archetype, and that's what it was for Manet. And so his painting. What was it, 1867, Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe, uh, where he paints, you know, these people having luncheon on the grass and the woman's naked and you can't figure out why. And there's no reason for it because it doesn't connect with a larger uh, meta narrative. It's just, here it is. And so Manet is the sort of founder of modernism in that sense of getting, of deconstructing all the iconotypes, what I call Iconotypes are what um, Derrida calls transcendental signifieds in his work. It's the same fucking thing. Uh, iconotypes, transcendental, whatever word you want to give it, it doesn't matter. Uh, but they're the ruling archetypes of a civilization. They, they, they code for the forms that everyone follows and reiterates and echoes. But Manet was like, let's just get rid of all that stuff in art. We don't need to still keep stuck with Greek myth and Christian myth. Let's do new stuff. Uh, this was after, you know, the Hausmannization of uh, Paris uh, with Napoleon III, completely reconstructing Paris as a new place, with, you know, new boulevards, everything was new. And so that was the idea of modernity, was new, 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 new. And uh, yeah, all the way down to the shock of the new, right? So. That's what we got with, with, with Manet was the foundation of this idea. We don't need to be beholden to the past. We have these new iconotypes that are that, like the flaneur, you know, the, the stroller through the arcades that Baudelaire comes up with. You know, that's a totally new iconotype. And so that all comes in with him and Baudelaire. And um, then that all gets deconstructed, of course, 
that, that becomes the foundation of modernity, which is based on a deconstruction, but it also brings in the new iconotype of the hyperdimensional object, which is the, like Bala's dog on a leash or Duchamp's nude descending a staircase. It's the, the, the thing where you see an entity in multiple dimensions simultaneously. It's not just what you see with your five senses. It's something that you have to infer as an entity that is exists on all of these multiple spatio-temporalities, like Gene Gebser said, with with his in, you know ever-present origin, with his idea of the integral consciousness structure. It's a totally new thing, and so it is a new thing, and it, that's why we call it modernism because it's totally new when it comes along. But then with postmodernity, the explosion of the atom bomb. Uh, the end of World War II, all of that gets wiped out, and you can see it being wiped out if you study the works of Mark Rothko. If you like, get a catalog Risen A of his stuff and go through it bit by bit, you can see him wiping out the iconotypes of modernity and bringing in these ontological absences, what Gary Dock calls in his first great essay, Structure, Sign, and Play in the Discourse of the Human Sciences. Uh, you can, and he's talking, he's saying, there's an absent ontological center here at the West. There's something missing that used to be there that's not there. And Rothko is doing the same thing in New York, uh, painting these semiotic vacancies of these absences that are just ontological, what, what I call semiotic vacancies, just emptiness where there used to be like a Madonna there or a Last Supper or a crucifixion, that's all gone now. This is why you know, I inspired Michael Kamen's work uh, to write his poetry book called Absences. That's the title of the book because he, he followed this and he really correct that we're dealing with all of these absences where there used to be iconotypes and transcendental signifieds that guided and shaped and made the whole civilization what it is, but they're gone now, right? So now what are we doing? Well, John, what's interesting about that is that it's like, because, you know, you were talking about the disappearance of the shopping mall and, and um, I th you know, all of us um, with this hypermodernity thing that we're talking about, uh, you know, we, we were all born um, in the early 1980s. I know me and Brian were and John uh, before that. So we all came of age seeing one cultural world shift into another one as an effect of this new media invasion, as John calls it. And so I remember this sort of disappearance of places, or I think Virilio calls it the twilight of places, mm -hmm. uh, where you, you know, where there used to be a sort of socius or a public square, places where people could, could meet, um, um, you know, there used to be benches at the shopping mall where you could sit down sure, sure. and yeah. those were wiped away. And so part, so part of the, with, with absences, that, that was one of the absences was the idea that all these places had sort of disappeared because everything had, had been vaporized. Um, and, um, and now it's been reconstituted in this digital form or it's been reconstituted in the cloud. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and so the one last thing I wanted to add to that is John was saying, you know, where did all these things go? What do you do now? And I guess 
sort of this fantasy I have in a way is sort of that like in 1995, what got us into this new era that we've designated as hypermodernity is is the internet, and the internet is like a net. It's like a like um imagine a fisherman you know throwing a net into into the water and um and and it sort of like th this net has covered over those semiotic vacancies and it's filled them in with these um these ethereal uh virtual images and so it's like you know it's it's like the internet has come in to fill in and connect all those semiotic vacancies and it's because yeah. it's to create this new another yeah. I, I, yeah another way to think of these this two things is is is, is the uh historical development of urban American space in terms of where we are now with hyper gentrification, which is absolutely cordial of, of hyper modernity in the modern period. Let's let's take Boston, for an example, where I'm from. You had a series of defined neighborhoods, each with their own narrative, each with their own uh, cultural institutions. You had an Irish neighborhood, you had an Ita Italian neighborhood, you had a Jewish neighborhood, you had an African-American neighborhood, and you even had kind of like a place like Beacon Hill, which was like the old Yankee neighborhood holding down the historical past of uh, Boston's founding. And then in the postmodern um, era, these neighborhoods start to fragment. You, you, you have the rise of suburbia. So a, a lot of these middle class, working class families kind of migrate out. And you have a collapse, essentially, of these working class neighborhoods where there's a lot of violence and you know, drug use spikes and so on and so forth. Um, but this is what th this corresponds to a liquefaction of modernity. And, and this would be corresponding to the postmodern period or the postwar period. And now with hypermodernity, you have a fully gentrified non-place, to put it in the terminology of the French theorist Marc Auger, um, you have a non-place where all of the neighborhoods have kind of melted into this singular Boston. And that's kind of where I got the title of my book, There Is No Such Thing As Boston. Because what you have now is just a singularity of a non-place, an it's absence. Like a, a utopia, where, like a, you know, no, yeah. no, no topos, right? And, and yeah. It's sort of all, it's everything is up in the air. It's just, it's all in the clouds. There's no, exactly. You know what exactly. I'm saying? Right. So it's, it, and what happens in that situation is not only do you lose the ethnic composition or the, um, any historical features of, of any specific neighborhood, but you, you have a kind of sense of subjective destitution where there's a spike of, of depression, a, a, a sense of kind of, uh, kind of, just kind of going which, which way your Facebook feed takes you. And this is a condition of, and this is another thing that we talked about in the book from kind of two different perspectives, but hypermodernity is without question a system of cities. And that's what's developing. I mean, the nation state in the era of hypermodernity simply, even though it is operative, and, 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 and even though in a way what we're seeing right now in hypermodernity is this kind of reactionary nationalist uh, backlash to try to prevent the trajectory of hypermodernity going e even further, ultimately the nation state cannot hold the velocity of, of this, cap this capitalist computational power. It simply can't. So hypermodernity is a system of cities, but that in another sense, and this is what John mentioned in the last dialogue, we're simultaneously in a process of leaving physical space behind. 
leaving cities behind. I just got the image of uh, in Empire Strikes Back, the city of clouds, you know, with Michael talking <laughs> about right. the uh, yeah. cloud city. But, 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 that, but that is kind of where, the, that, that is where things could be you going. Here if, on the cloud. Yeah. Well, so, that's okay. That, listen, you guys, uh, <laughs> this has been fantastic. Time to start wrapping it up. So I want to take our <laughs> oh, last few minutes. Gotta be kidding uh, you, John. Yeah, we got to do this again. Uh, <laughs> so we've been talking with John David Ebert, Brian Francis Calkin, and Michael Aaron Caymans uh, about their new book, Hypermodernity and the End of the World. And after the end of the world, there'll be two more books in the series. So let me ask each of you if you can tell our audience where they can find you. Should they look on, you know, YouTube? Do you post on Twitter? Where's the best place to follow you guys? Um, well, for me, I've I've written uh, this is my this this is my ninth book. So all of my books are on Amazon.com and other other sites as well. And you can find some of my stuff on YouTube and and and, and my website is briancolkin.com. John. Cool. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm on uh, cinemadiscourse.com and culture culturaldiscourse.com and uh, all of my stuff also can be found on Amazon. I have 26 books on there. And this is my first work of theory in 2 years, which I'm really excited about. And listen to these guys. John, I mean where do you find guys this brilliant? I mean, they don't just crawl out from under a rock, you know? <laughs> so listen, one more. Ebert has 600 YouTube, so be sure to check there. And uh, Mike, where do we find you? Yeah, so I've got um, my poetry book, Absences, is available on Amazon. It also has an afterword by John, by John David Ebert, which is amazing. So I recommend picking, picking that up. Uh, which you can find there. I also have some writings on Medium, medium.com. Um, mostly just these are sort of stream of consciousness notes on hypermodernity. I also have a, a sort of um, a, 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 some, a, a sort of a selected, I have a version of absences on Medium so people can read some samples of it. Um, and so there's that, and then also I do, uh, I am on Twitter at uh, Michael Aaron Caymans, um, and, um, or Michael Aaron K, I think, um, but I don't, you know, I'm, I'm on it like every week, not the best Twitter user, um, but that's it, yep. Okay, well listen, thank you all you guys. This has been Visionaries. You find us every Monday on prn.fm, and we'll have you guys back when you start getting feedback from the book. That's amazing. That's amazing that in an hour already went by. Thank you, John, very much. Thank you for having us. Hypermodernity, the end of the world. Available next week. Get it. Great.